0: Welcome to St. Louis on the Air, I'm Evie Hemphill. For about two years now, the widespread issue of sexual harassment and assault has received renewed attention through the Me Too movement. More and more women have spoken out about their own experiences and observations, and it's become more and more obvious that behavior like that of high-profile men such as Harvey Weinstein isn't a one-off thing. It happens to women everywhere. It also happens repeatedly, and my guest today Author Chavisa Woods has illustrated that constant battle in a distinctive way. In her newly released book, 100 Times, A Memoir of Sexism, she recounts 100 of her own experiences with sexual harassment, violence, and discrimination taking place throughout her life. Now based in New York City and the author of three books of fiction in addition to this new memoir, Woods grew up in small town Illinois and moved to St. Louis as a teenager. She'll be speaking at Left Bank Books tomorrow evening, and she joins me now over the phone in advance of her trip to St. Louis. Chavisa Woods, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Evie. Chavisa, one of the things that stands out to me about your new book is that number 100 times right there in your title. And that might sound like a big number to a lot of people in terms of a number of sexist and sexually violent incidents at times um, to be subject to over the course of one's life. And, and yet you write that you're not an outlier, that many, many women could write this book, could compile such a list. H- how did that play into your purpose in writing this book, that commonality?
1: That's exactly why I wrote the book. I think a lot of memoirs are written because the author believes there's something exceptional about their life that they need to put on the page. I felt that it was incumbent upon me to put this on the page exactly because my life is not exceptional. And I think when people um, hear that you've experienced 100 formative incidents of sexism, maybe the first reaction is, oh, I can't believe that it's influenced your life. Much, but I think when most women stop and think about discrimination, harassment, groping, sexual violence, and also microaggressions, you'll see that you could easily compile a list of 100 formative incidents of sexism that have shaped you.
0: And a memoir is sometimes a tell-all, or at least I think of that sometimes that way, with revelations or scandals, terrible actions by key players in the story. But despite the fact that you're not mincing these incidents and interactions for your readers, one thing you don't do is name the perpetrators. Um, I was curious about that choice. Why did you make the choice not to name these men? Well, I think with
1: the Me Too movement, we've seen some very famous and prominent men be named, and the media has um, grabbed onto that and made that very public. Um, That can become somewhat sensational, though. I think I wanted to Pull the conversation away from just demonizing and publicly persecuting famous, powerful men. And I wanted to start talking about systemic racism and what impacts everyday women and how all men are socialized to participate in sexist behavior. I also didn't want to conflict um, rapists and serial sexual predators with men who are taking part in more common, um, lower grade sexual or sexist behavior. Um, I didn't want people to think that I saw them as the same thing. I wanted to show the full range of sexist behavior in this book without necessarily drawing every man who has participated in this out and naming them as a monster and ruining their lives. Because I don't think every man that has participated in sexual beha- sexist behavior is necessarily a monster. I just think that this is something that we have to become more aware of and start to change the culture.
0: Before we go any further, a quick note of caution to our listeners today. We will be discussing topics including sexual harassment, violence, and rape on today's program. Also, if you or someone you know is affected by sexual violence and needs help, the National Sexual Assault Hotline is a great resource. That number is 1-800-656-4673. Again, that number is 1-800-656-4673. So Chavisa, in your book, you note that you've remained friends with some of these men you wrote about.
1: Yeah, a few of the men in this book um, are still dear to me and I am still friends with. And like I said, I think that we need to be able to engage men on this issue. And the most important thing is that men also be able to really hear us um, and listen when we say, this is a problem for me.
0: Yeah. Um, while you haven't named those names, in certain cases, you have named them, so to speak, to the adults in the room when these incidents occurred. As I was reading, I noticed um, you were alerting at times the people who have the power and influence in those different settings and scenarios to, pre- to prevent a predator from victimizing someone else. But they didn't always respond well in your experience.
1: I think um, the most prominent story in this book that exemplifies that is the chapter um, where I'm 14 and a lighting technician who was in his 30s um, working in a community theater assaulted me and attempted to rape me. Yes. While I was writing this chapter um, and dealing with, actually still dealing with this, honestly, the Christine Blasey Ford case was happening. Um, when I was 14, this lighting tech assaulted me, attempted to rape me because i signed up to um, be tutored by him to learn, you know, theater tech, and I was alone in a theater with him in a small lighting booth, and he um, grabbed me, held me down, and sexually assaulted me within a few minutes of my being alone with him the first time ever. I barely knew him, and I'd barely spoken to him. I was 14, and I felt very afraid to tell anyone because I thought people would say it was my fault. Um, I'd been sexually active with my boyfriend very young, so I thought that people That would play into how people saw me and saw this incident. But then um, within a few months, a couple of other girls who were in the drama club um, in the neighboring town where I attended drama club told me that he had also sexually assaulted them. And one of the girls was a bit older. She was 16, even though he had sexually assaulted her a year before. And we all decided to go to a teacher together. Mm -hmm. Um, When we went to that teacher It was, you know, moved up the ladder sort of quickly, but then it sort of hit a ceiling. Um, There was an internal investigation conducted by a social worker, um, I believe. I wasn't really, it wasn't explained clearly to me, and it was all an unpleasant and difficult experience. And when I was watching the Christine Blasey Ford case, they kept talking about an internal investigation. Why didn't someone conduct an internal investigation? And I just kept thinking, well, I know what that looks like. And it really is just sitting down and seeing if all of the people involved say the same thing. And in this case, it was three girls who were saying the same thing. And ultimately, we still received pushback. We still weren't ultimately believed by a few of the people we told, some of them adults. One of the adults actually said to me, when I volunteered months later to go up and um, get a table down from the prop booth, and another boy who I was friends with had volunteered, she pulled me aside and said to me, You don't want to get yourself in trouble again, do you? You're going to go into a room alone with a boy. What if this happens again? As if then it would be my fault. And I thought, well, I've been in the room alone with dozens of men, my teachers, my coaches, um, pianist accompanists, and they never tried to rape me, so I didn't have a problem with them. I wasn't getting myself in trouble again. And that sort of thing was just really hard to deal with.
0: It seems like we're still hearing some of that in Today's culture with um, sometimes men responding to accusations, um, with, well, or other men saying, "Well, I don't want to be alone with a woman anymore." To all of this, absolutely. I mean, doesn't Mike Pence say that
1: that he doesn't want to be alone in a room with a woman because what she might be too tempting, she might say that he raped her. But the fact that when this happened to me, and I told and did exactly what I was supposed to do, then I became a potentially guilty party for anything else that might ever happen to me. I mean, it really set in stone pretty clearly that everyone looked at this like it was really my fault and somehow just my existence had instigated this incident.
0: Well, we'll come back to some of that victim blaming in a moment, but um, the young age at which sexism, sexual harassment, and even violence began to shape your life is striking in this book. Several of the stories you tell begin with the phrase, when I was five years old, or when I was seven years old. Can you talk about a couple of those experiences you had really early on? Oh, absolutely. I think the first
1: one, the first chapter in the book, um, it starts at five years old, and I was playing in the sprinklers with um, a boy from the neighborhood, and he started pinching my butt, he was about a year older than me, and saying sexual things to me. I didn't like it. And he was also physically hurting me because he was pinching me so hard. Um, And I told him to stop. He chased me. I hit him. He pinched me harder. I went in and told the adult. And previously in my experience, if I had hit someone or taken someone's toy or another kid had done the same to me, you know, we'd get in trouble. It was just it was pretty clear cut. You can't do that. You get in a bit of trouble as a young kid. But when I told the adults this boy was pinching my butt and I don't like it and it hurts, they started laughing and they uh, said, oh, did you like it? Did you like it a little? Did you like the attention? Like it was cute. And that was really perplexing to me and made me feel really ashamed. And I think that message um, just began this first inkling of my understanding that if a boy was hurting me just violently, he would get in trouble. But if the way he was hurting me was sexual in nature... I would be blamed and people would think that it was my fault or that I was wanting attention.
0: I'd love for you to actually read one of those uh, shorter stories in your book a hundred times, uh, number six, which, recount, which, which recounts an experience in grade school that you had, if you, if you would.
1: Sure. So this is about a rite of passage. I was raised um, in a small town in Southern Illinois, um, but I think this, was, this type of behavior is pretty common um, across the country. Here we go. Number six. In the third grade, five or six boys ran by me on the playground and snapped my bra strap. They all swarmed me and snapped my bra strap, one after the other, because it was the first day I'd ever worn a bra. They did this to every girl the first day they noticed her wearing a bra. It didn't bother me so much, honestly. I was expecting it. I had known it was eventually going to happen to me for about a year, and accepted it, strangely, as a rite of passage. But some of my girlfriends were so upset they cried when they found out they had to start wearing a bra because they feared and hated this ritual. One of my best friends was especially upset about this. She was 11 years old when she developed breasts, and when she was finally given a bra by her mother, she had a small breakdown. I remember sitting in her bedroom, her holding my hand, tears running down her cheeks, saying, Please don't let them do that to me, Chavisa. I can't stand it if they do that to me. I was surprised by this reaction because my best friend in grade school and I were an odd couple. I was dorky, religious, bookish, and strange. She was a popular, beautiful, blonde athlete, a star of the basketball team, and much more physically fit and capable than I was. I thought if she was mad at the boys, she could fight them or outrun them, or tell them off and they would actually care, but she was asking me for protection. The next day she showed up to school wearing a bra, which we could all tell because it was summer and you could easily see the outline of the straps through her shirt. I told other girls how upset she was and her close friends, as well as girls who didn't know her well, became angry. They all got the same determined look on their faces and said, don't worry, we won't let them bother her. That day on the playground, many, many girls and one of her more effeminate close male friends stood around her, keeping her between us the entire recess. We noticed some of the boys gathering, pointing, and talking, sometimes no doubt about getting her, but they didn't because they couldn't have gotten through us if they tried.
0: Thank you, Chavisa Woods. That's the sixth story in her book, 100 Times, A Memoir of Sexism. Chavisa, were there experiences you just couldn't bring yourself to write about?
1: Of course, yes.
0: Well, we need and to. And there are some okay. in the
1: book that I still don't want to read aloud or talk about, um, but I put them on paper once, and now I'm done with them, and people can read about them.
0: Yeah. We need to take a yeah. quick break, um, but, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU.
1: Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. ChooseWood.com.
0: Welcome back. I'm Evie Hemphill. I'm talking with Chavisa Woods, who is the author of 100 Times, a memoir of sexism, as well as three books of fiction. She'll be in town tomorrow night speaking at Left Bank Books, a quick note of caution to our listeners who may just now be joining us. We are discussing topics including sexual harassment, violent violence, and rape on today's program. Also, if you or someone you know is affected by sexual violence and needs help, the National Sexual Assault Hotline is a great resource. That number is 1-800-656-4673. Again, 1-800-656-4673. When... Chavisa Woods, when did you start writing this book? Was it in the wake of the Me Too movement?
1: I actually started writing this book 10 years ago, um, but I didn't realize I was writing this book. I began keeping a log as a sort of mindfulness technique because I was experiencing so much daily street harassment in the summer when I was in my late 20s um, that I decided I needed to start writing down just exactly what was happening to me um, without much exposition as a way to sort of look back and see if it really was as bad as I thought it was.
0: Was it a cathartic experience at all?
1: Writing the book? Yes. um, Actually, I would say it was re-traumatizing, and I would not recommend anyone do what I did um, for therapeutic reasons. I literally just wrote down what happened um, chapter after chapter and left it up to the reader to decide why this happened what the men's motivations were and how I must have felt after it happened.
0: Um, And would you have any advice then for others who are interested in sharing their own experiences?
1: I think if you're interested in sharing your own experiences, first evaluate um, what the pushback is going to be for you and what um, the reward or what the benefits are of sharing this. While I was beginning to write this book, the lighting technician I actually um, had mentioned before, um, just a couple of years ago I found out that he had actually been hired back to the same theater he was fired from because he assaulted me and at least two other girls. And that was while the Christine Blasey Ford case was happening. I was writing this book, and I found out that he had been rehired. Um, And I decided to write that chapter out as a letter the board of the community theater where he was working again. And I contacted one of the other women now who was assaulted by him as a child. And she also wrote a letter and she's now a decorated military officer who lives in another state. And we decided that we needed to do this and make this as public as possible um, in the small town so that he wouldn't have access to other young girls to do this again. Crazily enough, the um, board of the community theater and the president responded to us once saying they were taking it seriously. Several months passed and nothing nothing happened. And then they ceased responding to our calls and emails altogether. We actually had to call um, the Department of Children's Services in Illinois. And they started an investigation into him again, which would be the second or third investigation into him. I found out from another woman that he had also allegedly, and I don't think it's alleged, raped someone else um, around the time that he had sexually assaulted me, a fourth person that we didn't know about before. But during the investigation, he quit. Um, And so there's still nothing on the books officially about him assaulting young girls repeatedly and raping a woman. So I think that if you want to share your story and you think it will have an impact and you can safely do so, then definitely do it.
0: As you've been revisiting these topics and these experiences, I wonder, how how do you keep from becoming bitter through all of this, or do you? I decided to share these stories because I realized that whether or not
1: I share these stories, I'm still going to have to deal with sexist violence, discrimination, and harassment. Um, It's not going to stop. And at least if I share my stories, I know that I'm doing something to try to force a change
0: in society.
1: And yes, to answer your question, am I a little bit bitter? Of course, I'm angry and I think I'm a bit traumatized.
0: There are quite a few instances throughout 100 times where you say no to a man or explicitly ask him to stop or tell him a particular advance or come on is definitely not welcome. And they double down on their behavior in some cases. And it made me think of awareness campaigns around consent and what consent looks like, but also had me feeling some despair because in some of these cases, the problem doesn't seem to be confusion about what consent is, but a total unwillingness to take no for an answer.
1: Absolutely. I actually just saw, um, this beautiful piece by a queer artist it's balloons um, in writing on a wall and the writing says against this blue wall and it's these purple balloons that spell out these words It says straight men know what consent is when they go to a gay bar and i i thought oh well that that says something and it's sort of catty and sort of campy but it says something that that we kind of know intuitively right for some reason when we talk about men being touched, especially by other men in a way that they don't want to be touched, we know where the line is. But when we start talk- talking about cis straight men touching women or um, you know, assaulting women in a way that they don't want to, for some reason the line gets blurry. I'm a very sex positive person actually. Um, I hang out sometimes in sort of cruisy spaces. I Um, I'm definitely not a Puritan, and I don't like to see the Me Too movement or conversations around it devolve into a sort of puritanical sex panic. And I see a lot of men responding by saying, oh, I can't talk to women anymore. How do I hit on a woman? How do I flirt with her? Mm -hmm. Nothing in my book is just a man flirting with me and then stopping when I say no. Even if I say no a couple times and he continues flirting, it's not that. One good example actually happened while I was writing the book. When I was coming to the last few chapters, I took took something out and put this in. I was at a restaurant bar, a bar at an Italian restaurant, waiting for my partner and her daughter to come. And a man started chatting with me, chatting about his wife and kids, having recently moved to the neighborhood, how much he liked the neighborhood. Very casual conversation. I thought, and then at one point, he asked me if I would like to go home with him. And I said very clearly, no. No. I'm waiting for my partner and her daughter to come. And I said in so many words, I'm just looking for friendly conversation. And he told me his wife is on vacation and he really likes me, yada, yada, yada. Would I come home with him? And the second time I said, no, no, I really am just looking for friendly conversation. Then he leaned forward and said, oh, come on, I can tell you like me and grabbed my breath.
0: Wow. You respond so to – I think the no, line is very clear here, yes. Yeah, I, I found that too. It didn't seem like it was this fine line thing. The line seemed very clear. And you respond to different instances of sexual harassment and assault in your book in different ways at different times. Um, there's the just ignore it technique, asking them to stop multiple times technique, and occasionally hitting back. Um, have you found that some responses work better than others in general, or is it just completely case by case and totally hard to predict how, how a man will respond? I think that it's gone. I've gone
1: through different phases throughout my life. Um, the hitting back came in my mid twenties after, um, three of my lovers and one of my close friends were all violently raped within a couple of years. Um, and I, I snapped and when men would touch me after I told them, no, I didn't want anything to do with them sexually. And then they would touch me. I began hitting them for a couple of years in my mid twenties. Um, And I don't necessarily regret it, but it's not always the tactic I use now, depending on how aggressive the advance or assault is. I haven't found that any one technique works better than another. I don't think there's any right way to respond to sexual assault. The onus isn't on you to respond correctly or incorrectly. It is a traumatic and invasive event, and however you respond is right.
0: You're very clear from the get-go about these experiences occurring across different locations, different geographies, and across class and ethnicity. So this may not be the right question, Chavisa, but having lived in places as disparate as rural Illinois and New York City, are there some differences in terms of the types or frequency of sexism you've observed in those different areas? Well,
1: sure. In my experience, I mean, in a in a packed city like New York or San Francisco or Berlin, there's more street harassment that happens that might look unfamiliar to someone who lives in a rural area. They think, well, well, when I walk down the street or when I go to the strip mall, like, this doesn't happen. Um, Also, people know each other more often, and it's less anonymous in smaller towns. Um, I think it was more people that I was in contact with, like the community theater technician um, or in, or office discrimination when I was in the small town. But in New York City, there is a lot of street harassment as well as everything else because there's just more foot traffic.
0: Um, a few days ago, we mentioned on social media that, that we'd be talking with you about your book, and we asked listeners what they might title their book if they were to write a memoir of the sexism they've experienced. Um, I want to read a few of those hypothetical titles and the first names of the women who sent them to us. So here we go. Every Damn Day by Aubrey. You Exude Confidence and That's a Problem by Rachel. You Wouldn't Understand by Don. If You Won't Let Me, You Must Be Frigid by Lois. These Are Tears of Anger by Laura. Your Husband Must Run This Cafe for You or Honey Is Your Boss Here by Bethany. I'm looking for a man to help me lift that, the first book in the Why Don't You Give Me a Smile series by Amanda. Do You Need to Call Your Husband and Other Things Mechanics Say by Katie. I only give estimates when both the husband and wife are present, present, the contractor told me by Claire. Actually, A Memoir of Mansplaining by Rebecca. Just Play Nice by Katie. A couple more. (laughs) You Know What You Should Have Done and after never doing anything, in parentheses, by Desi. And finally, Renee, another listener, wrote to say she doesn't have a suggested title, but that Rebecca Solnit's Men Explain Things to Me is a great title already and resonates with her. (laughs) And speaking of Rebecca Solnit's book, you make mention of it in your introduction to a 100 Times, and you go on to tell quite the story about reading it on the subway. Um, I I wonder if you could share with our listeners a little bit of of what happened that day.
1: Yeah, that was one of the most ironic things that ever happened to me, and I thought if I wrote this as fiction, no one would believe it. Um, I was having a little trouble writing the introduction. I'm good at telling stories, but then speaking more theoretically um, isn't necessarily my strongest suit in writing. Um, so I decided I was going to read a little bit of Rebecca Solnit's Men Explain Things to Me, which is um, a series of essays, and see if you know I could get myself writing on the right track again. And men explain things to me. The cover looks like a billboard. It's blue with white letters, and it's no image, and it just says in big, bold capital letters, men explain things to me. And I took it on the subway, and I think it's the first time I read it on the subway, and as soon as I sat down, I could feel men staring at it. Um, There was sort of a tension created by this book. And within about a minute of my reading the book, suddenly a man's finger planted itself in the middle of my book, And he began explaining the book to me, which he had never read. And I thought, well, now I'm reading this book to try to write an introduction for a book I'm writing about um, men invading my space repeatedly (laughs) in public. Um, And it's a book about men explaining things to women that they know nothing about. And like both of these things are now simultaneously happening. Um, And the man pointed to a line that said, women strike for peace, which is... um, was an activist group that was against nuclear arms, um, and strike in this case means protest. And he started saying things to me that, um, you know, made me very aware that he thought that this was about a female sex strike and saying you shouldn't have to withhold sex from us for us to be peaceful. I love women. I, and I kept telling him, no, it's not about that. And he's like, yeah, you shouldn't have to do that. He wasn't even hearing my words. Um, and he said, you know, I love women. You are mother. You're a mother. You are mother. And I said, I'm not a mother. He said that you have potential. All women are mother. And, um, you know, he didn't really listen to me at all. And eventually the doors opened. He just said, you're welcome, and left. Um, and then all the women on the subway who had heard what had happened started screaming with laughter. Some of them clapped. Um, we thought it was so funny. Yeah what had happened. It was so ironic. Um, and I decided to put that story in the book because I think it really, the whole story exemplifies so many things that I'm trying to get out here um, that are under the surface, that women, if we are respected, um, are only respected as mothers, sisters, um, as and daughters as these sort of classical feminine tropes. And the point that I'm trying to make is that sexism is bigotry. We um, should be equal to men and not held up by men as some classical feminist trope, but just I don't want to be a subcategory of human anymore. I'm a person, not a female person.
0: Your book just very recently came out, but what response have you received so far from male readers? I know you want men to read this book.
1: I definitely want men to read this book, and I actually wrote this um, with men reading it in mind. Um, That's part of the reason I didn't name any men. I want this book to hopefully help some things that may be invisible to so many men to be more visible and understandable when we talk about the cumulative impact that sexism has on us. And I've had some pretty good feedback from some straight men in my life. You know, a couple of men have reached out to me and said, I was reading this. And I said to my female partner, can you believe one woman has experienced this many incidents of sexual harassment and assault? And my female partner pointedly said, yes. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And they wrote to me and they said, this book made me closer to the women in my life. And that to me is a win. And that's exactly what I want. I think sometimes narratives have the power to propel social change. Um, by fostering greater empathetic understanding and that's what i'm trying to do here it's a plea for empathy and understanding
0: what conversations should men be having with each other in the wake of me too
1: i am not completely sure but i do think men need to talk about this alone with each other i also think they need to talk about this with women in their lives and i think they need to listen to women and they need to work it out among each other as well um I would really like men to start thinking about why their perception of women um, as humans who are deserving of equal respect only shifts in relation to their close families, their daughters, their sisters, their mothers, and think about extending that respect and empathy um, to other women. And also think about the subtle differences in ways that they might respect other men and understand that other men have autonomy in a ways that they don't necessarily think about other women in their lives.
0: Um, one of the recurring threads in 100 Times Just a scene that recurs seemingly over and over in all sorts of permutations is when you're simply walking along a street or a park (laughs) and a man punches Mm -hmm. you or, in another case, your girlfriend. Um, A man screams anti-gay slurs at you or says that you deserve to be assaulted. Um, That really astounded me, and I have to say... I get catcalled, catcalled all the time um, as a frequent pedestrian in St. Louis, but I haven't endured something quite like you describe in those scenes. Um, in writing this book, are, are there ways in which you're hoping to open readers' eyes to the ongoing issue of homophobia as well? I actually only
1: put a few instances that involved homophobia specifically in this book, and they I really wrote this book with a laser focus on sexism. I am a queer woman, um, and sometimes homophobia and sexism are intrinsically interconnected, and sexism is at the foundation. Um, And there are ways that gay and queer and bi women are um, targeted that maybe heterosexual women are not. I actually was talking to one of my straight roommates, and when I told her about the violent tone of a lot of the sexual harassment I received, and then she went out with me once. And I was dressed sort of butch, and she was wearing a dress. And a man started saying very violent um, things to me about raping me um, in a certain part of my body. And she said, well, they don't talk to me that way. And I thought, oh, okay, so this also has this other layer to it. But the ones that I put in the book, the man is looking at me and saying, you don't look like what a woman should look like. Um, I don't shave my legs. I was wearing, like, a tie and colored shirt with a strange skirt. I'm kind of punky. And then he was pointing to a pregnant woman and saying, this is what a woman should look like. And, you know, that's homophobia, but it's also sexism because I am, you know, veering outside of the norms of what femininity should be. Um, So those are the instances that I put in the book. I felt also were very steeped in sexism.
0: Okay. Well, we need to take another quick break, but we'll be back in a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. And welcome back. I'm Evie Hemphill. My guest today is Chavisa Woods, whose latest book is titled 100 Times, A Memoir of Sexism. She is also the author of three full-length works of fiction, her debut collection of short stories, Love Does Not Make Me Gentle or Kind, The Albino Album, which is a novel, and Things to Do When You're Goth in the Country. Chavisa, just a few weeks ago, we actually had co-owner Chris Kleindienst of Left Bank Books on this program in light of the store, the bookstore marking 50 years of existence. And she was talking with St. Louis Public Radio reporter Rachel Lipman, who was hosting the show that day. As you prepare to speak um, at Left Bank tomorrow night, Chavisa, I thought you'd appreciate this exchange from a few weeks ago between Rachel and Chris
1: can you give an example of a customer that you might remember that you personally helped or you know that other staffers at the store have helped where they expressed to you that the atmosphere really enabled them to be who they are to discover who they are to learn who they are I'm sure you had there are
2: hundreds of stories like that but is there one that stands out to you in particular oh, there's there are. I think hundreds, um, and <laughs> the uh, right now the one that comes to mind is actually an author. Um, her name is Shavisa Woods. She has a new book out of nonfiction um, this month called 100 Times, which is a memoir of sexism. She's actually going to be in our store um, July 18th to, to read from and talk about it, but she grew up about an hour and a half outside of St. Louis. Uh, her last book of short stories is called "Things to Do When You're Goth in the Country." <laughs> She's a very fabulous, talented, queer young woman, and it. Um, she has told me a few times that making that regular trip to our store was everything for her. That it it grounded her. It gave her like a sense that she belonged in the world, and um, of course, she was very as a writer. It was it focused her as well, and and um, she is a writer, and she's the successful published one, and she lives in New York now. And uh, I feel like, you know we did have a not insignificant role to play just being there for her.
0: That's Chris Kleindienst, co-owner of Left Bank Books, talking several weeks ago on this program about today's guest, author Chavisa woods. Chavisa, does that does what Chris described there match up with your what you experienced um at Left Bank over the years?
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I think I started coming to left bank books when I was 15. Um, and yeah, I grew up in Sandoval, Illinois, um, in Southern, and it's a small farm town, but I think it has like 1300 people. Now when I was there, it was about a thousand. Um, and I was being raised Southern Baptist. I have a very good relationship with my parents and grandparents, but I was being primarily living with my grandparents as a, Child and they were Southern Baptist, so the fact that I was gay was a really difficult process and I had to hide it for a while. And when I would come to St. Louis, I would come with my older friend who was 16 who could drive. I would go to Mochabee's and Left Bank Books mm-hmm. almost every time I came. I think I saw Rita Mae Brown read there um, in person and when I was 17 or 18, and it was just mind blowing to me that Chris could get these heavy hitters um, from all around the country and sometimes around the world. And that we had access to that in what seemed like to me the middle of nowhere at the time in Southern Illinois, that I could actually just yeah. drive an hour and a half and have access to this vibrant queer culture.
0: That must be cool to now be coming back reading at that same bookstore.
1: It's really an amazing experience. Yeah. It's an honor, I would say.
0: Uh, were there other ways in which your years in St. Louis were especially formative for you personally, professionally?
1: Absolutely. I think I'm um, being part of the Community Arts and Media Project camp. Um, it's sort of a socialist, anarchist collective. Um, I lived there when it was just beginning um, for a little over a year, I suppose. And I was part of, you know, St. Louis Indy Media. We did bicycle workshops in the backyard. We had a community garden. Um, we formed a lot of, you know, we, we took part in a lot of protests of the second Iraq war. And we also did a lot of really innovative art projects and big interactive art shows. And I think that St. Louis was just formative um, in my identity as an activist and an artist.
0: Do you you come back beyond book tours? Do you ever come back to visit?
1: I come back a few times a year to visit my family and friends. Yeah.
0: Well, how do you think your writing has evolved since your debut book of fiction that came out about a decade decade ago, if I'm not mistaken?
1: Yeah, so primarily I am a fiction writer. I actually thought I would never write a memoir. Um, this is sort of my first completely activist literary project, um, is how I think of it. I think that when I was younger, um, my writing was definitely a lot more sort of flowery and lyrical and. I think writing is really a skill, it's a craft, and the longer you work at it um, and the harder you work at it, the better you will get at it if you're willing to edit yourself and to take advice from older writers. Um, I think now my writing is much more deliberate um, and a little bit more, the language is a bit more sparse than it was when I began, Um, but I do feel like I have more control over storytelling than I did when I was younger.
0: Cool. Um, In addition to the sexism and related issues that you delve into throughout your latest book, 100 Times, you've written stories that really illustrate other big topics, uh, wrestling with military recruitment and evangelicalism, issues of class. Can you talk a little bit about some of those other topics in addition to sexism that are sparking your imagination these days?
1: Absolutely. So I really like to write um, about where I'm from. And my mentor, who's, you know, a New York City man who actually just passed away, Steve Cannon, um, he's originally from New Orleans, but he really embodies the Lower East Side of New York. He was here for decades. He used to ask me, when are you going to start writing about New York City? When are you, you going to stop writing about, you know, the country? Um, but there was something about where I grew up and about the lack of visibility of working class and very poor people in rural America and literature um, that compelled me and still compels me to write and rewrite these characters in this environment. I think a lot of times um, in literature, we don't really like to look at poor people and their lives um, and what their struggles are. And I try to put that in my book. I also think that the country is full of you know, the rural areas of the Midwest and the and the South are really full of um, just some really amazing, vibrant characters that often get a short shrift when they're being written about from people um, from middle, middle and upper classes.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely found that in your book prior to this one, I think, things to do when you're goth in the country, some, some great stories there.
1: Um, yeah, I just don't want um, those characters to either be A lot of times when I read literature, it's like everything is horrible and you're supposed to feel really sorry for the characters or they're all good or they're all bad. And I just wanted to show that sometimes there's a lot of struggle, but at the same time, there's a lot of dark humor and there's a lot of adventure and joy that comes with that. Yeah.
0: Well, getting back to the topic of your latest book a bit more, there have been many, many takes so to speak, on feminism and the label of feminism in recent years. Um, One that I actually read a while back is by Jessa Crispin titled, wait for it, Why I Am Not a Feminist. And believe me, I didn't take that like on the train with me or in public places. Um, But despite Crispin's title, she's not suggesting that feminism is a bad thing uh, or that things like self-empowerment, the presence of more women in positions of power or anything like that is a bad thing. But she also feels like something is missing um, from contemporary feminism, and I'd like to get your reaction to a quote from her book. Um, She writes, we need, as a society and as women, to define what it is we value, how we express that value, and what we ask society to value in us. Money is currently how we express value, particularly through our unconscious association between income and worth. We must imagine a world where value is expressed with things like love and care. What do you make of her perspective there as to how the system and all of us, maybe collectively and individually, need to change?
1: I completely agree with her. Um, And I I do not believe in capitalism. But I also think that if you shift um, into socialism or any other form that isn't capitalism, you will still have a problem with sexism. And we will still need feminism. And the reason I wrote this book is to try to paint the bigger picture of what that looks like and to show that there is no such thing as reverse sexism there's no equivalent of this in the lives of men there is a disparity in the way women are treated because we are women in all spheres of society and this includes sexual violence but not only sexual violence it also includes pay rate um, the way that we have access to health care and the way we are treated when we access health care political representation, social representation, and violence. The truth is, um, right now, according to a report from the United Nations that came out in 2018, 34% of women who are murdered in the world are murdered by an intimate male partner. And most of those occur when the woman is leaving the relationship. There is no reverse equivalent. Women are not murdering men because they are men at a rate that qualifies as a major mortality rate or health risk.
0: You actually conclude your memoir with a litany of statistics like that about violence against women. And you note that at least one in five women will be raped in their lifetime and nearly 50 percent of women who are transgender will be raped. Also, women between the ages of 15 and 44 are more likely to die or be maimed because of male violence than because of cancer, malaria, war, and traffic accidents combined. What do you hope the reader comes away with after reviewing those numbers? I think
1: that I'm making a really broad point because we are still so far away from any real change that this point has to be made. I feel like all of my life, and for decades before I was born, Women have been saying sexism exists, and it is a real problem, and it is unacceptable. And the collective pushback from too many men has been, it's not that big of a deal. Get over it. It can't be that bad. And this book is my way of saying, yes, it is. This is exactly what it looks like. Read this and tell me if you think that this is acceptable.
0: I'm curious what your thoughts were when one of President Trump's – he he responded to one of the latest accusations against him by saying something like, she's not my type. Um, What are are we to make of these sorts of comments coming from our country's editor (laughs) – commander-in-chief?
1: Editor-in-chief. Well, he's also an editor-in-chief, right? He tells us what's fake and what's real. Um, And he also says that he didn't say things that he's on tape saying. Um, When he said that, I actually wrote that down, so I'm glad that you brought it up. When he said that, I had so many thoughts. And I actually did a radio interview um, last week, I believe, with Egene Carroll, who has, you know, openly talked about the fact that Donald Trump raped her in a dressing room at a clothing store. And the strange thing to me was hearing even someone as powerful as E. Jean in the last minute of one of the segments say, well, maybe I shouldn't have been flirting with him. That sort of fell out of her mouth. Yeah. And I thought, oh, my God. How insidious is this message? She is a powerful, courageous, strong, and loving woman. And to hear her say that really made my heart sink. Um, and I think it goes back to what I was saying before about being sex positive. I think that when we're taught as girls that we don't have sexual desire, that we should repress our sexual desire, that our sexual desire is not as strong as men's sexual desire. That does something to us and our culture, um, and it it sends us a very strong message that when we say no, mm-hmm. it we we may not be believed because men think that we are saying no because we don't want to be embarrassed or we're not we don't really know what we want sexually. So when I hear Donald Trump say, she's not my type, I realize that he believes and he knows that his sexual desire is legitimate. And if he says, I wouldn't do that because she's not my type, everyone's looking at him and thinking, well, he doesn't find her attractive. His sexual desire is legitimate, and it's much, much more legitimate than a woman's sexual desire. And E. Jean Lee was saying, I was willing to have some kind of sexual interaction with him. I was flirting with him. I didn't want to be raped, and what he did as soon as we went into that dressing room to flirt, maybe make out, was shove me against a wall, pull down my underwear, and rape me. And for her to say that, a lot of people then in their minds think, well, you shouldn't have been in that position. What did you expect? But I think that if we saw women's sexual desire as equally legitimate to men's sexual desire, we would not have that reaction.
0: Well, we're a little over a year and a half out from when the hashtag MeToo really took off. Do you feel the conversation is still moving forward?
1: I think it's moving forward in great strides, and I'm very grateful to the MeChu movement. While I said before that I do not think only public persecution of individual famous men will be the thing that forces um, larger structural change, I do think it's a good start. And a lot of the men who were named, like Bill Cosby, Louis C.K., Harvey Weinstein— are serial sexual predators. And um, this did need to come out and they did need to lose access to the amount of power that they had.
0: What do you think is the most enduring aspect of the movement?
1: I think the most enduring aspect of the movement is women finding strength by coming together. And this is what I have found over and over throughout my life. I wouldn't have come out and said that an adult tried to forcibly rape me when I was a child if two other girls hadn't also come forward and said it with me, because the pressure was too great. The guilt in me was too great without them there to legitimize me. And I think women have found that when we speak together um, and we, when we support each other, we have maybe an unparalleled amount of power and force in this world.
0: Well, Chavisa, we just have a a few, uh, about 30 seconds left, but what's next for you? Do you have another book in the works at this point?
1: Yes. Thank goodness I'm going back (laughs) to writing dark and strange fiction, which is my first and probably will be my last love um, when it comes to writing.
0: Well, I want to thank Chavisa Woods, author of 100 Times, A Memoir of Sexism, for joining us today. And a reminder that Chavisa is speaking at Left Bank Books at 7 p.m. tomorrow night. Chavisa, great to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.
1: Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more.